Welcome to the It's Your Turn podcast, brought to you by Next Leader, where we advance ideas about leadership, personal and organizational development, and Bible-centered leadership with a special focus on the next generation. If you're a next generation leader, we want to remind you that the best way to reach your goals is to reach your potential. Get started today. It's your turn. If you're not a next generation leader, you know other people invested in you along the way, and it's your turn to give back. In just a moment, I'll be turning the microphone over to Steve Moore, the host of It's Your Turn. Steve serves the Association for Biblical Higher Education, or ABHE, as Executive Director of Next Leader. But first, a few words about today's show. In our first segment, Idea Watch, Steve will share the easily overlooked key to understanding the Book of Daniel, why missing it blinds us to God's dealing with Israel, and what all this has to do with the presidential election cycle here in the U.S. In our second segment, Quick Reads, Steve will introduce to you some of the best content from the Harvard Business Press book, Indispensable, When Leaders Really Matter, by Gota Makunda, Assistant Professor at Harvard Business School. In our final segment of today's program, The Monthly Conversation, we'll share highlights from Steve's interview with Gota Makunda about the leadership filtration theory and how it helps us to think about leadership transition from the grassroots all the way to the presidency. Thanks for joining us for episode four of It's Your Turn. Now, here's Steve. Greetings from Atlanta and welcome to the It's Your Turn podcast. Our theme for this episode is leadership selection and transition at the macro level. In our Idea Watch segment, I want to share the simple but often overlooked key to understanding the Old Testament book of Daniel. I believe if you miss this key, you will gloss over a powerful moment in God's dealing with Israel and the important application for today. The 12 chapters of Daniel can be divided in half. The first part, chapters 1 through 6, is historical. The second part, chapters 7 through 12, is prophetical. The key to understanding Daniel, both parts, is remembering that the main character is actually not Daniel, but rather Daniel's God. Daniel's favorite name for God is the Most High. And the theme for the book could be outlined like this. The Most High rules over individuals, over nations, and over history. Thanks to my leadership mentor, Bobby Clinton, for helping me understand the book of Daniel. Daniel 1 shows us the most high rules over Daniel's life, along with his three friends, even in a difficult situation far from home. Daniel 2 shows us the most high rules over the nations and over history with the revelation and interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. These lessons are then reinforced multiple times throughout the rest of the book. Chapter 3 is an important chapter. Much has been said about the fact Daniel is not mentioned in this chapter, but keep in mind the main character is not Daniel, but rather the Most High God, who obviously plays a prominent role in this story. I'm not going to take time to retell this familiar a story about the showdown between Daniel's three friends and Nebuchadnezzar because of their unwillingness to bow to the idol of gold that he had built. What I do want to point out is the reason the Jews were in Babylon in the first place was because of their persistent worship of idols. 
In spite of the repeated warnings by prophets like Jeremiah, the people of Judah insisted on worshiping idols until God had no choice but to do what he had promised Moses and send them into exile. So it is somewhat ironic that in Daniel 3, we have a very public showdown between the king of Babylon and three Hebrew young leaders who would rather die than worship an idol, believing their God was able to deliver them. And of course, he did deliver them, miraculously so. God used Nebuchadnezzar to set the stage for this public act of defiance of the king and obedience to God in order to break the stronghold of idolatry over the people of Israel. Now, they would later struggle with other issues, such as robbing God by withholding the tithe and eventually, in the time of the Pharisees, legalism. But never again would idolatry be their national besetting sin. That national spiritual stronghold was broken in Daniel chapter 3. In fact, throughout the exile, the highly ethical, monotheistic faith of the Jews would become very attractive and draw many God-fearing Gentiles toward the synagogues. So what's the big idea here? Martin Luther said God governs the spiritual dimensions with his right hand through the church's proclamation but he rules temporal affairs with his left hand through civil and earthly institutions, even when wicked rulers like Nebuchadnezzar are in power. Or as Nebuchadnezzar himself would say, the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. In the words of the old Negro spiritual, he's got the whole world in his hands. Daniel would remind us, the most high rules over individuals, and that includes you. Over nations, that includes ours. And over history, that includes today. I find these truths reassuring in the face of a run-amuck political season and a world filled with global terrorism. I hope you will too. Well, as mentioned in the open, our quick read title for this month is the book Indispensable, When Leaders Really Matter. It's by Gota Mukunda, who serves as assistant professor at Harvard Business School. We have a quick read summary on the website that includes the best chapter, the best quotes, the best illustration, the best idea, and the best takeaway from this excellent book, just go to ideas.nextleader.com, and then from the homepage there on the Idea Portal, just click on the Quick Read link at the top of the page. In our final segment of the podcast, we'll feature a conversation I recorded with Gota Mukunda, but first I want to highlight an idea we didn't get into uh, in the interview itself. And in order for the idea I want to share to make sense, I'm going to need to introduce you briefly to leadership filtration theory. It's the core concept of the book. And of course, we'll dive into that in a lot more detail in the interview. 
Leadership filtration theory explains the process by which leaders are selected in large organizations. That would include denominations, universities, even megachurches. Leadership selection processes are comprised of filters that are designed to ensure the people considered for those top positions have the right kind of education and experience that leaders should have in order to be eligible for that position in the first place. These filters in turn homogenize the pool of candidates. So by the time the list is narrowed down to one or two possible choices, the marginal difference between them is very little. And if selected, their actions may be somewhat different, but the choices they make will be very similar, primarily because they've been to the same schools, read the same books, had the same kind of experiences. Now, in extraordinary circumstances, a candidate might might bypass the leadership filtration process and someone who would normally not have been considered is given the opportunity to, to lead. They're selected. And Mukunda describes this as an unfiltered leader. His theory posits that unfiltered leaders will have the greatest impact, but not because they act differently, but because the actions they take are based on different choices. So in other words, the impact they have is greater, not necessarily because they act differently, but because they choose differently. As a result, unfiltered leaders are really a high-risk, high-reward decision. They have the greatest impact, though it may be positive or it may be negative. Now, I needed to share that just to kind of set the foundation for you here, but if your organization needs someone who will shake up the status quo, you will almost always need an unfiltered leader. If you want more than a business-as-usual leader, you're almost always going to need to go with an unfiltered choice. But if you are working with an executive search firm, it is highly unlikely they will recommend an unfiltered candidate because of the high risk of failure that's involved. See, their reputation as a search firm is linked to the success of the people they place, which means they will almost always recommend filtered leaders that are much lower risk. My recommendation to every search team that I counsel is to read this book, Indispensable, and then spend some time reflecting together on whether they believe the organization needs or should consider an unfiltered leader. And if the answer is yes, or even maybe, make sure the filters in your selection process can accommodate this kind of unfiltered candidate. And if you're working with an executive search firm, insist they read Mukunda's book and are prepared to consider unfiltered leaders. Once again, you can access a full summary, quick read summary, uh, with the best information from this very, very fine book, indispensable at ideas.nextleader.com. In 
our final segment of today's podcast, I invite you to listen in on my conversation with Gautam Mukunda about his excellent book, Indispensable When Leaders Really Matter. It's a privilege to talk with you today. Uh, Gautam is an assistant professor in the Organizational Behavior Unit of Harvard Business School. Uh, he received his PhD from MIT in political science and an AB in government from Harvard. His research focuses on leadership, international relations, and the social and political implications of technological change. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations in MIT's program on emerging technology. Thank you again for taking time to talk with me today. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me, uh, especially given the really important work you do that your audience does with Christian colleges, getting a chance to speak to people who influence such a large chunk of the future of our country. Leadership is a remarkable honor, and thank you for thinking of me. Well, before we jump into the content-specific questions, I want to start more on the 30,000-foot level here. And so I'm just curious, where did this book come from? What was the trigger for your research and then ultimately your writing? So it came from, a, from two things. One is a lifelong fascination with leadership and leaders and this question of how is it that certain people can somehow inspire their followers to do things that, that those people would have thought were impossible under any other circumstances, right? What is it that it takes to get someone to charge a machine gun nest or sacrifice their interests or even their lives for their fellow human beings? How does that happen? What sort of leadership does it take to make that happen? So that was the first. And the second one was this question of when I looked at if that's the heroic model of leadership, inspiring people to be better than they ever thought they could be, when I looked at the world and looked at history and looked at countries in particular, I saw so many leaders who were awful. And not just in the sense that they were failed, but in the sense that, they were that you could sort of said, have said long in advance, long before they got the job, this is not someone you would ever want to have power. And the way my mentor and my advisor, when I was a grad student, described it, he said once, what you really want to understand is why do so many crazy people run countries? <laughs> and my own sense was that the theory that we'll talk about was started out answering that question and I think ended up looking at a much broader one. Sure, sure. Well, one of the ways that I evaluate books that I read is the extent to which they introduce breakthrough ideas that I haven't seen in any other book on a similar topic. And your book introduced me to a totally new concept that I have yet to find in any other source. And I'm pretty confident, unless uh, our listeners today have read indispensable, the idea of leadership filtration process and leadership filtration theory is almost certainly new. So briefly, and I understand briefly is kind of a tricky word on a topic like this, but can you give us kind of the, the big picture overview? What do you mean by leadership filtration process and leadership filtration theory? I'd be happy to, Steve. So think about it this way. Any organization, it has a leader, but it's never going to pick that leader randomly. It's got some process that it goes through, some set of mechanisms it uses to evaluate all the candidates for leadership and decide at the end which one of them is finally going to get the job. Given that, what I say is that when you think about how these organizations do it, they usually aren't actually picking a winner. I say what they're really doing is picking losers. They're forcing people out of the race until the last person standing ends up as the CEO or the college president or something else. Mm -hmm. And I call that filtration process, where people who are not what the process is looking for are over time pushed out 
leaving the remaining candidates for the job more and more similar to each other until finally one person ends up with the job. And leadership filtration theory is the theory built on the idea of that process. What it simply says is, okay, if that actually is how organizations end up with their leaders, what does that mean? And my conclusion from that is that if an organization has a process that perfectly evaluates every candidate for leadership and sorts among them and the last person standing is the person who is the closest fit to whatever, you know, exactly what that process is looking for, whatever set of characteristics it wants, then it doesn't really matter who the organization picks as a leader because whoever it picks will be someone who is very, very similar to that ideal set of characteristics. Mm -hmm. So the actual identity of the leader doesn't matter, only the process does. Mm. If, on the other hand, the process, for whatever reason, either doesn't fully evaluate candidates, or once it has fully evaluated someone, that evaluation doesn't actually play a role in the final decision, then you might get someone who is very, very different from all the other people who might have the job, and they might do things that are very, very different and therefore have a very big impact, right? So I'm thinking of an individual's impact on an organization. Yeah, and I think that's really an interesting perspective because normally we think about leader impact based on what did that person accomplish. And you're suggesting that it's not just what did that person accomplish, but it's actually the marginal difference between what actually happened and what would have happened if the most likely alternative had actually been in power instead. That's exactly right. And the way I think about that distinction is, imagine Franklin Roosevelt, when he gets the news about Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. So Roosevelt goes to Congress and says, we need to declare war, and Congress does. And what I would say is, okay, you know, that happened while Roosevelt was president. But did Roosevelt really have an impact on the decision to go to war? Because is there any conceivable president of the United States who would not have gone to war given an attack on Pearl Harbor? Yeah. And the answer to that is no. So for that specific decision, we shouldn't say that Roosevelt had an impact on it because he didn't. Anyone else would have done the same thing. Well, I want to come back to your um, concepts of evaluation and decision. You talk about the filtration process has these two components. And you say evaluation is necessary, but it's not sufficient in order for someone to become a uh, filtered leader. And and for a a leader to be filtered, the evaluation has to be connected with a decision. And sometimes some other circumstance can delink those two elements. But I'm curious, can you give us an example of how that process, in particular the delinking process, has played out in history or in some other contemporary example to highlight? So let's start with the hypothetical, right? So George H.W. Bush is president of the United States. He appoints Dan Quayle to be his vice president. Uh, Dan Quayle is a senator, and then he's vice president. He's under a lot of public scrutiny. People get a feel for who he is. And that feel, if you remember back, the Bush administration was not a positive one. People didn't have a very high opinion of Dan Quayle. Yeah. But if something had happened to George H.W. Bush, he would have been filtered but we wouldn't have had a choice. Dan Quayle would still have become president of the United States, even though very few people would have thought, gee, that's a good decision. Mm-hmm. So that's the hypothetical. But if we think about Theodore Roosevelt, Roosevelt became vice president. McKinley's campaign manager picked him essentially to neutralize him. Roosevelt was a reformer who wanted to sort of fix the Republican Party, and, and he was moved to the vice president because they thought they could basically get him out of the way. And in fact, Hannah's comment upon when he became vice president was, my God, that maniac is only one heartbeat from the White House. (laughs) 
Well, I want to continue this, this conversation, and I want to dig a little deeper. I'm going to quote directly from your book. And you say, uh, thoroughly filtered winners of the leadership filtration process will almost always be modal. Leaders who have somehow bypassed filtration are far more likely to be extremes. And here's the, the sentence that I want to key in on. This means it should be possible to identify high-impact leaders based solely on the extent to which their lives before taking power exposed them to filtration. Uh, again, can you give us an example, either contemporary or, or historical example of that? Uh, I, I just wrote a piece about Trump saying that, look, if you apply my theory to Trump, he would score as incredibly unfiltered, that he's never spent a day in elected office. So people don't have any sense of what he would do with political power because he's never had any. And they've never seen him try to write and work in government. And working in government is profoundly different from working in the private sector. So whatever little, and we can't learn much, but whatever little we can learn about his time in the private sector, that tells us even less about what he would do in government. And what we do know is that sort of party elites, the people who know him best and who have the best picture of the White House and what that job implies, clearly don't want him anywhere near it. Mm -hmm. That's someone who the theory would predict, forward-looking, is likely to have a very, very high impact on, you know, for better or for worse. And remember, this is the key idea about impact is that impact doesn't mean good, impact means different. The easiest way to have an impact on an organization, after all, is to fail. <laughs> yes. Well, then picking up on that, you say in the book, extreme leaders are important because they make choices most leaders would not make. And you highlight that when you make a decision that almost everybody else wouldn't make, most of the time it's not good. If it turns out to be good, you're a genius. Speak to the risks of unfiltered leadership and when extreme leaders actually are needed. There are a multitude of risks about unfiltered leadership. The first one is that you'll pick someone who is just fundamentally incapable of the job, sort of was foreseeable, but either was not foreseen or it, the fact that it was foreseen stopped it from happening. The second is you might have someone who gets the job, but who is just sort of managerially incompetent. You might have someone who has sort of personality disorder someone who's just unstable and that would have been detected under closer scrutiny, but wasn't at first. Wow. Yeah. Well, let's, let's flip it over and talk about filtered uh, modal leaders for, for a second. You say in, in the book that filtered modal leaders are most likely to fail not when they have defective personalities or are simply incapable, but when the situation has changed to something completely different from what it was when they were passing through the filtration process. You say that they're well adapted to the situation as it was, not necessarily to the situation as it is or will be. So my question is this. This seems to suggest that a rapidly changing environment would increase the need for maybe an extreme leader, but organizations tend to be even more risk averse when they're in a rapidly changing environment. Can you help us make sense of that? Rapidly changing environments can increase the need for an unfiltered leader if the type of change is a type of change that the, that the organization is incapable of dealing with through its conventional processes. Hmm. So organizations are not, at least good, well-run organizations, are not purely rigid creations. They do adapt and they do change over time. There are certain types of changes they're good at and there are certain types of changes they're bad at. Mm -hmm. So what you would need to understand if you want to pick an unfiltered leader is, is your organization good at this type, like this type of change and not another one? Yes. 
Uh, I, I want to come back to the um, extreme leader for a second. And you, you talk about how uh, extreme leaders, you know, what part of what, what makes them extreme is they're going to do what other people wouldn't do, maybe even when they're advised against it. And yet you, you highlight that sometimes the advisors for the extreme leader are actually right. And when that's true, the extreme leader will have the humility to defer to their judgment and that truly transcendently great leaders have this paradoxical combination of self-confidence and humility. What advice would you give to leaders that would help them cultivate this rare combination of confidence and humility? Let's start with humility. I would say that if you were a leader, as you're analyzing decisions, you're going to have a preference, a bias. And what I would say in a real sense is I would urge you to think about that preference like a scientist. Not how do I prove myself right, but how do I prove myself wrong? Mm. And that's a very different way of looking at the world. There's a line from Tom Clancy, not usually the most quotable of writers, but he said once that men wed their ideas more faithfully than their wives. <laughs> I would tell you, okay, you should say, what's the piece of information that I could conceivably learn in the time before I have to commit to one choice or another that would show me that I'm wrong? And then go look for that piece of information. Hmm. Well, I've got one last uh, question for you here, and I want to come back to the election. You've already talked briefly about that. But I guess I'm kind of curious as to what do you think is happening to the process itself that has created the space for such a definitively unfiltered extreme leader like Donald Trump? I think a variety of things have happened. Primarily, it's important to realize that, you know, the people who are disproportionately represented amongst his supporters, it's sort of lower middle class, white, primarily men who haven't had an enormous amount of higher education. And it's important to say that these are people who American society has served extraordinarily poorly over the last 25 years. For the last generation or so, essentially, not only has the median income in the United States gone sort of stable or gone down slightly, but for this group of people, it's gone down even much more so. These were people who disproportionately worked in those factories that were most likely to be hit by outsourcing. So there is what can only be characterized as rage there. That's real. And we, you know, American elites have been way too dismissive of not just the reality of that anger, but the justification for that anger, right? And the last one is the aftermath of the financial crisis, where we saw the second largest economic disaster in the history of the United States, once surpassed in scale only by the Great Depression, which the United States government responded to, at least perceptually, by giving lots of money to the people who did it. Hmm. If you're not angry about that, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> so it doesn't surprise me in any way, shape, or form that the combination of all of these factors leads to the rise of an outsider who rejects elites is populist, conservative in some ways, liberal in others, you know, populist, not matching the traditional boundaries of American politics, and really, really angry at what's happened. Mm -hmm. What's sad for me is that it has manifested in the form of Donald Trump, who is, frankly, among, uh, so I wrote, I wrote about this, so I'm on public record saying this, in my opinion, if you apply the theories in my book to him, is, and I should say, right, in my book involved the study of every single presidential election in American history, is, in my opinion, the single most dangerous political figure in American history. Hmm. And so the tragedy here is that this movement, which could 
and I think and I hope eventually will become something profoundly healthy for the United States because any reasonable set of policies that was aimed at helping lower middle class Americans would I think help all Americans. Those policies would be good for this country. And I think once that movement, I hope, eventually frees itself from Donald Trump, one could hope that that's where the direction it will go. Wow. Well, I was with a group of national leaders uh, recently in Washington, D.C., and the conversation was focused on the election and the inexplicable rise of Donald Trump. And I simply said, uh, the only way I think we could make sense of this is to read Indispensable by Gota Mukunda. And I project he's probably going to be writing something about it or being interviewed on TV about it. And I decided I couldn't wait for either of those. I needed to talk to you. So there's a lot more we could discuss about your book, but we're going to have to leave it there. But uh, Gautam Mukunda, thank you once again for, for sharing with us today. This has been remarkable and helpful. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And again, let me just say, I, I'm just so excited to get a chance to speak to your audience, given the extraordinarily important work they do. I hope that this is helpful to them. Yeah, thank you. Well, the title of the book, again, is Indispensable, When Leaders Really Matter. Uh, I absolutely loved it. As you can tell, I've bought copies of this book to give away to people, and I have recommended it widely, and I encourage you to pick up a copy for yourself. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for joining us on this episode of It's Your Turn, brought to you by Next Leader. You can access the show notes as well as resources mentioned in today's episode on our website, ideas.nextleader.com. And you can subscribe to our idea portal, so you don't miss any of Steve's blog posts, podcasts, or video blogs. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free ebook, Why Dead People Make the Best Mentors, and How to Learn from Them. Until next time, don't sit on the sidelines. It's your turn.